Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. To celebrate the state of emergency that our world is in, uh, I watched uh, Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and Cuba Gooding okay. Jr. Yeah. And, Good. Uh, yep. And uh, That's not, It's not Ebola in that, is it? It's what Mo- is it? Motaba. Motaba. Well, but you know what know. happened? You remember what happened, right? It was, oh, yeah. uh, that was, uh, uh, I remember what's his the, name? Uh, what's his name? I, Michael Crichton. I yeah, I remember the, the sneeze going through the vent in the movie theater. Yes, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but see, it was Michael Crichton writing the fictionalized account. I think it came, I, I think this is the way where I haven't done the research on this. I need to check it out. But I'm I'm thinking we need to do a disease series next year. I want to do like contagion and, uh, well, anyway, so, um, so I think what happened was, uh, hot zone was the, was the account of the discovery of Ebola. And then Michael Crichton wrote the fictionalized version of that and called it Motaba because I think, and I'm no virologist, uh, but I think when they show the slides of the actual virus of Motaba that they call Motaba in outbreak i think it, i mean it looks uh, uh, you know it looks like ebola like it's looked like they just took ebola and made it motaba right so um maybe that's why it's so mad <laughs> do you think that's what started the, the fury the fury, the fury begins it's really it's horrible this is horrible stuff i'm not it's, like it, in a panic state about it you know at this point but it's it's ugly for those who are dealing with it oh yeah yeah it's pretty horrible um, so I watched that, and then after that, to cool off, to chill off, I watched uh, Her. Oh, cool. Yeah. I have one that I still have yet to see. Really? I know. It's, it's, I always try to catch up on my uh, Oscar nominees, and that's I somehow I missed that one. And I mean, everything about it screams, Andy, you need to watch this, but... We should do a uh, Scarlett Johansson is a computer series of <laughs> Her and Lucy... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I, I don't think you wanted to watch Lucy again. No, I, we can do it without actually watching Lucy. <laughs> Believe me, it'll be the same conversation. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, but this one, uh, I will tell you, let me just tell you about it. Um, I, this was a, uh, it was, I thought it was lovely. And uh, I found myself uh, not a little bit heartbroken at the end. It was, uh, it, it was, it's been sticking, it's been gnawing at me. I want you to watch it so we can talk about it because it was, it was, I thought it was beautifully well done. Nice. Yeah, it re- it was a redemption film from Lucy. Oh, good. Which was a bucket of poop. You know the what is that other movie that she did that also looked really interesting? Under, Under the, the skin? skin. Yeah, yeah. Not a robot, but certainly an otherworldly being that is very uh, different. Yeah, <laughs> very different for her, uh, especially. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was good. What about you? You see anything this week, or you just been busy budgeting, producing? Ah, uh, what have I seen? I did go see, um, I, what did I take the kids to? The Book of Life. Oh, what'd you think? 
I thought it was, I, I enjoyed it. It's a, a really magical film. It's a beautiful world. It's a, uh, a magical story. Um, I felt the story itself was lacking um, from my perspective. The story, things happened uh, just because it felt like they needed to happen in context of the story. So I never really got fully invested in it. But uh, the kids loved it. They had a great time. I felt if they could have overcome some of the story issues, it would have been a really fantastic film. Mm. As, as it stands, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful world that they created here. And it certainly is worth checking out. Um, so it's, you know, kids will love it. I think adults will, for the most part, enjoy it too. And it's, uh, um, yeah, other than just the story issues, that's my biggest gripe. But hey, it's making money at the box office, so they're doing a good job with it. Well, that's great. I, it's it's intriguing, and I haven't... It's one of those, like, box trolls that, that was really intriguing to me, but I haven't seen it. I We haven't... You know, my kids are at that age now where they would rather see... Maze uh, Runner. It, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm missing, like, uh, there was a window where we would see every animated everything. Right. Uh, and now we're seeing all the uh, YA stuff, so... Right. So be it. Shall we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Hey, everybody. It's the next reel. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. How to do? And we spoil movies heartily. Uh, you can catch up with us. You can learn a little bit about us at thenextreel.com. You can uh, follow us on all the various social platforms. Uh, it's typically just, you know, xyz.com slash thenextreel. If you want to find us, go there. Uh, and uh, we would love to uh, to talk to you and hear uh, hear about your your thoughts on movies. That's what we want to hear. Um, Absolutely. What do, we, what do we have to share with the people this week? We did our uh, listener's choice last week. And we, we did. Have, we've now been in touch with the good and kindly Jeremy Wicket. Yes. And uh, we're, we're working out those details. Very excited about that. Who won the listener's choice? We're not going to tell what movie he's picked, but I'm going to oh. tell you this. Oh, okay. I'm pretty excited. I knew you would be. What are the, what are the odds, seriously? That I, I know. Was, it was like weeks <laughs> ago, I was telling you, I really want to talk about this movie. How can we work it in? And then I he know, would pick this movie. You're like, we need to build a series around it. Yeah. It makes me think the whole thing was set up. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Who would rig this? Right. <laughs> you went to a lot of trouble to rig yeah, that Listener's so Choice Award there. Pete. I am <laughs> very excited about this. Uh, clearly, uh, the good Mr. Wicket and I are kindred spirits. Uh, so this will be a lot of fun. What else do we have to talk about with the Do we have any, any other updates we need to share with people about that kind of stuff? Um... Not that. I don't think so. I think that's it. Other than, you know, keep guessing on the Instagram uh, Pony Prize Contest because that uh, that drawing is coming up in a couple months, right? It is. And speaking of the moment everybody's all been waiting for, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. How did you do this week on the uh, uh, standee versus the people? <laughs> the standees. Uh, you know, it was a... Uh, it was a little bit of a, 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 a trip, I guess you could say. <laughs> a little bit of a stumble. Uh, first image out of the gate, and it, it took, uh, dare I say, uh, moments before a good old soda pop rocker nailed it. Uh, yeah. Right out of the gate, and just he knew right away that that image was from none other than the uh, the cult classic Heather's. 
And so uh, that was a... (laughs) (laughs) That was so fast. There wasn't even a... Nothing. The first comment, the first image, Heather's. Yeah. And then Blot, of course. Uh, Ben Lott comes in. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen that probably more than once. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's awesome. It's a very identifiable film. But it's, you know, it's good to throw these in once in a while for people, right? Yes. Yeah, you know. That's because the easy gotta, ones, yeah, gets their, lowers their guard. That's right, because then next thing you know, we're going to get Fritz Lang's spies again. <laughs> <laughs> really throw them for a loop. That's right. You call you call up Stephen and say, "Release the Kraken." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Then it comes out. Oh yes. Well, it this does. is a great set of images, and I, uh, I, I, this is a, a big favorite of mine too, Heather's. Yeah, it'd be fun to do a little cult classic series. It sure would. It sure would. Mm, Let's do trailers. I'm going to go first. Uh, My trailer, it it really piques my curiosity, and I don't really know what to say about it because there is so little information out there about it. But it is called Ambition. And it's actually... Uh, actually, opening tomorrow at the BFI Sci-Fi uh, Film Festival in, up in the UK. So uh, good old Stephen Smart can try to make his way over there to see it tomorrow. It, but it's this interesting-looking film called Ambition that, uh, you know, I don't—the trailer doesn't give you a lot other than it's this really interesting-looking sci-fi story that is about some people. It looks like kind of a mentor and a student— uh, and they're learning to kind of make worlds is kind of really all that you get out of the teaser for this interesting film. But the thing that caught my eye is that it has uh, none other than uh, Littlefinger in it from Game of Thrones. Um, Iden Gillen plays uh, the mysterious mentor figure who is uh, training this. It looks like he's training this woman, Iceling Franciosi, I think is her name. I think so. Um, you know, it looks like she's, you know, moving her hands around and rocks and things are forming and coming together. And, um, I, I mean, I wish that I, I knew more about it. I, my, uh, my curiosity has been thoroughly piqued and I just really want to see this now because, uh, I just don't see a lot of, uh, really unique sci-fi movies that I don't, um, that just that have something kind of new and interesting looking. This looks new and interesting. I think they filmed it in Iceland, and uh, oh. it's, it's it has that craggy sort of look that uh, I think we last saw in Prometheus, which also kind of had that. I think yeah. they filmed some of that up there. So um, yeah, I mean it it draws me in, and I want to know more. So they their teaser has thoroughly teased me. It really ha- it's beautiful. I mean it it gives you. I don't know. It's sort of that. Um, um, oh gosh, what is the the dream thing? Um, what's that the, movie I like so much? Oh, uh, the dreams. He was going to the dreams, and they rob people in the dreams. Yeah, Inception. Inception. It's got it's got that sort of in, it, like the same thing that in, that captivates me about Inception. This idea of total control over the universe that in which you exist is right here. Um, but then it goes into this whole like cellular thing. <laughs> And, uh, right. you know, the, the chimps beating each other with rocks. And then, I mean, it's just, right. uh, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a big deal. Um, but it looks really, really interesting. And I, I'm with you. I think it looks uh, beautiful. Yeah. I look forward to it. It's weird. I can't see it in, like, an Iden Gillen's IMDb page. It's not, it doesn't appear to he's, even be listed. 
he's not listed on their page uh, on IMDb. Only Iceland Franciosi is listed on it. It's directed by Tomek Baginski. Um, but it, their website, Ambition, I think it's ambitionfilm.com, uh. uh, um, it still doesn't have a ton of information, but it does have, it does have some stills. You can see uh, kind of making of photos. You can check out the posters and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's a site that there are still, uh, you know, clearly a lot of stuff is, you know, being built and updated and everything since so it's, it's just, yeah. a, I guess, at the festival point right now, but... Well, okay. it looks really, really interesting. Yeah, yes, it does. All right, yes, it does. So that's mine. What's my yours? turn. Yeah. Oh my god! 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 I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing Avengers: Age of Ultron. Ah, oh, trailer came out yesterday. Uh, I immediately my accidentally <laughs> accidentally. Damn it, Hydra. That was a great Twitter Twitter response, but they uh, they did a good job. They uh, you know, it's nice to be able to laugh about all these things. Well, and I think it was very smart on their part to just say, eh, eh. Hydra's, <laughs> you know, they screwed us up. Let's just release the high yeah. def now. You know, yeah. it's like oh, they just took it in stride. They totally did, and uh, it, it, well done, uh, Marvel. Good good spirits, good sports. The trailer is amazing uh and you know i'm just a hooligan for these characters like i think i just i it's been like in the back of my mind kind of dormant how excited i am now about these characters i cannot wait to see what they do with them um i i think ultron looks terrific sounds terrific the trailer is haunting uh doing the the uh you know Pino- song from pinocchio uh, there ain't no strings on me uh in a really haunting minor key uh, did you is, say there ain't no strings on me yeah I did that's, that. that's a different version of Pinocchio yeah. that I saw. <laughs> Yo. Yo. <laughs> Yo, there ain't no strings on me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, that's kind of what I imagine Ultron sounds like when he's off duty. Um, and uh, and so I'm very, uh, uh, I'm very enthusiastic about this film. And so I immediately, my son was sound asleep, and I went up and I took the iPad up and I woke him up and played it for him. <laughs> Needless to Just say, like it was a good father should. not easy to get him to go back to sleep. Um <laughs> Anyhow, so I'm very much looking forward to this. It opens May 1st, 2015. I will say this made me more excited about this movie because, I mean, the Avengers, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the vibe of that film, but I thought the story was really lacking, uh, which, you know, I think is a problem I have with uh, a number of the Marvel films. But uh, uh, the Avengers really, like, especially when we got into that last fight, I just kind of thought it was a little uh, tedious. Um, but this, it looks like they've got, uh, just a much better story, much more interesting. And it looks really interesting the way that it, it ties in the nature of these superheroes and yeah. kind of this, this world that they've created by introducing, you know, uh, like Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark says, you know, this is the end of all the stuff that we've started. Um, I mean, by creating all of these other kind of I don't know what you call his troops, but the little Iron Man people that kind of can help stop crime and stuff. All of a sudden, things go awry, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I I think it looks like a uh, a much more solid story that, in a way, feels more grounded in the 
in the uh, just kind of the earthly element of the story being told. Yeah, and and you know, it, there are some things that are, you know, you can. It feels like it's this is the end of a new of a chapter, and we're going to be introduced to some new Avengers, and like it, it just feels like uh, this this is pivotal. This film is going to be pivotal in the cinematic universe, and I'm very excited about pivotal things. They, they, I like it when they blow them up <laughs> on, yes. on giant screens. Uh, so this looks very exciting and, um, that old Joss Whedon, man, he can turn him out. Yeah. So. And it's got Hulk smasher. And yeah, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> so very excited about this. Nice. I'm going to go get in line now. You know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to put on some Liberace. He almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the road's open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. Oh, misery. Sweet misery. That's where we are right now. We're doing uh, 1990s uh, Misery, a Stephen King adaptation, continuing uh, our Stephen King conversation. This one directed by Rob Reiner, written by a script written by Billy, Billy Goldman. Billy G. Oh, Billy G. Uh, Starring James Caan, Kathy Bates, and most importantly, Richard Farnsworth. Who is always fantastic <laughs> in everything he is. ever? He is uh, Francis Sternhagen uh, is uh, his? They're just cantankerous to each other. Uh, his wife, they're fantastic, and of course, Lauren Bacall, um, who is not in it much, but she is. Uh, she is. It's so great to see her on screen. Yeah, it's always great to see her popping up, even if it is such a small little, uh, yeah. uh, kind of a cameo role, but. She's just great. She really is just great. This is based on, obviously, the uh, novel of the same name, Misery, which was, if I remember, much more gruesome uh, than the film. And yet, the film is is still terrifying. And I think it continues uh, Stephen King's 
um, wonderful uh, evolution as a writer as he begins to dig more into the things that he fears the most. Uh, and, and this, uh, you know, particularly according to Rob Reiner, this was, this was a, a film that was very, very close to, to King, that this was the thing uh, that he feared the most, being able to uh, shift gears as a writer and begin to do things that risk disappointing his most ardent fans. And uh, the nightmare that is misery emerged from that. Uh, an author, Paul uh, uh, Paul uh, Sheldon, who is known for writing his uh, fantasy romance series about uh, old uh, misery Chastain, um, changes gears and kills his lead character. And this is what happens when his number one fan uh, gets him alone. Mm. How did it stand up for you? It's this has always been one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. I, it's just it, it's such a uh, well, it's it's a it's a well crafted and very um, efficient story, and I I really enjoy watching it. It just moves, and it's just really psychologically disturbing and, and creepy, mm-hmm. and uh, it. Uh, uh, the the uh, I, I think William Goldman, when he adapted the novel, um, found the right way to adapt it, and and left the left things out that um, you know didn't necessarily need to be there, or changed them in order to just make the film uh, work better as a film, and uh, just on the whole, really created a. Just a, just a, in a way, kind of just this perfect little horror movie. Yeah, and and uh, yet this is funny. It's like we were talking about last week. Um, this is a, a film. Uh, it's a horror film that is not terribly horrible, hor- right. hor- horrific, <laughs> uh, and and yet it is. Uh, it, it's. It's scary because, again, of that human element. This is the human terror, not the supernatural terror that we have had seen up really through Stand By Me or to Stand By Me uh, from King. And I think that's one of the things that makes this uh, so powerful. You know, it's a similar vibe. We we had that that theme replayed for us when we talked about you know Fury. Um, you know, you've never you've never seen what you know. I can't remember what the what the line was. I think it came from Bible, right? It was this whole concept of, um, you know, what war is when you f- the first time you see what another human being is able to do, what a human being is able to do to another human to being. Another, right? right, does, that right make, yeah. does that ring a bell? Am I not? I'm not, yep. I know I'm butchering yeah, no. that line, but that was the that was the idea, and that's what mis- misery I think really celebrates. In Stand by Me, we got the after effect of what a human being can do to another young man and kill him. We just have the body, uh, but here we actually see um, we see the the. Uh, the terror itself as it plays out in real time. Uh, and, and it does so in a really interesting way. A- Annie Wilkes played by uh, Kathy Bates. I think she, um, she is an un- otherwise unassuming uh, nurse, uh, someone in a field that we are conditioned to trust, conditioned to believe that they are always there to help. And she does so by helping. She carries him in a fireman's carry. She carries James Kahn across the woods. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, she, and go ahead. She she's just she's a fascinating character because 
Um, not just because she's so helpful and knows how to take care of him and everything, but also because she, uh, you know, initially we get the sense that she knows who he is and she's there to help. Yes, out of grace and love mm-hmm. and caring because she's a nurse. She is the symbolic uh, representation of all that is good and healing. Right. And we are thus betrayed by it. Brutally. It's, so, it's, uh, yeah. talk, talk about Kathy Bates and her performance. What do you think of her? I mean, first, I think that a uh, huge credit has to go to just, you know, Stephen King in this brilliant writing of this amazing character of Annie Wilkes and how really, truly terrifying she is as a as a person because of the psychology. And, you know, he really is this master of writing um, getting into the head of these characters and the psychology of them, especially the evil characters in his books. And that's something I've always loved is how frightening the bad characters are in his books. I mean, you know, I, I read Under the Dome, I think was the most recent um, book of his that I read. And just, you know, the, the sheriff of the town is just, I mean, he's really just, you know, it's really a terrifying character along with his son. And you get into their heads and you're you're playing that game with them as they're deciding to do these bad things and it's really creepy and he does that so well with this character of Annie Wilkes and getting into kind of this passionate uh fandom uh world that she's in you know she she happens to be following her or she doesn't happen she's purposefully following her favorite uh, author because she's a stalker um and he happens to get into car wreck and he uses this uh, she uses this as her opportunity to help him quote unquote uh which turns into this this horror thing because she's this crazy number one fan who hates his new direction that he's going in because he's trying to get out of this kind of uh, romance novelist sort of uh, world that he's been uh, pigeonholed into by writing this new book that is kind of an ex- exploration of his, of his youth and all that. She hates it because it's full of profanity and violence and all this. Um, she gets mad at him. And then his 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 uh, latest novel, Misery's Child, comes out. She's so excited. She reads it. And then there's that terrifying moment when she comes in or she wakes him. Uh, and she's so upset because Misery Chastain dies at the end of the book. And that was his way to kind of kill that character so that he could move on and do other stuff. But for her, Misery Chastain was the end-all be-all. And that was the character that she wanted to follow. And um, she goes into this rage. She abandons him, leaving him you know, unable to move. It's just this terrifying situation that she's put him in. And I, what does she say? She's like, I think I... I should leave right now before I do something. Yeah, this um, is right after she nearly smashed the table on his head. Right, exactly. She throws it at the wall, and she's so upset, and and then she just leaves. And, I mean, she's just... There's definitely this person who is clearly just psychologically uh, disturbed, and she's got some... I mean, I look at it as she's just a person with a serious mental disorder, and... uh, probably a uh, clearly a killer of some sort we never really get a sense as to what she's done in her past when we see the the kind of the scrapbook that she's kept but as a nurse in the in the in the uh, maternity ward there were a lot of mysterious baby deaths and i think there were some other people i know in the book she had killed it, it her scrapbook had included a lot of other stuff like i think she it alludes to her having killed her father to having killed like a college roommate i think yeah. and gosh who else and then just a, a bunch of the babies and stuff like that um 
I don't. Uh, it, it it's it's a little vaguer in the movie, but you know that's fine. I don't think you need to have it all spelled out. You get this sense that she is this kind of crazy lady who. When she's happy, she's really happy. When she's upset, she's really upset. And God forbid you're on the receiving end of of being uh, around her when she's upset, because it will turn fast. And that's what happens in this situation. And man, Kathy Bates is so spot on the entire time in this film. She's perfect as that adoring fan. She's perfect as that woman who lives in the country that you uh, kind of don't want to pay attention to when she's yelling at you, when she drives through town and shakes her fist at you. Uh, she's that that really kind of kook that uh, that has the pet pig and and is that romance novelist fan. But when she turns, it's so frightening. And she plays that perfectly. Uh, from the moments when she's screaming at him to that one of the most terrifying lines for me is when right after she hobbles this guy and she looks at him and it's just like, God, I love you. Oh. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that is almost scarier than the hobbling. You know, it's so she's just, uh, the perfect person to have been cast in this role and rightfully won an Oscar for it and knows how to play all the levels up and down all through the film and make it work uh, in context of the story, and uh, and you know works really well with James Caan. I mean, she's she was good. She's really freaking creepy. She is uh, incredibly creepy. You know what? I I think one of the elements you just you alluded to here, you you touched on, is this idea of fandom, uh, and and what uh, Annie Wilkes represents to this idea or ideal of fandom. And I think that's one of the most interesting um, concepts at, at work in this film, that we have a writer who has devoted much of his adult career to writing this character. Uh, when he comes into contact with Annie Wilkes, what he realizes is that he no longer owns his work, right? His work is owned in in some respect by the fans, and she is a representation, as as I view it, of this fandom and and part of the horror that comes with you know Paul Sheldon's new awareness of his situation is that he has lost control and that he is merely a custodian of this misery, Chastain, uh, at the at the mercy so to speak, of the fans. And and that's very much a, a sort of a growing up for Paul Sheldon. And and obviously the what what happens in in the film is is the horrific story of him trying to escape his imprisonment. But there is very much a, a cerebral kind of a, a of an awakening that that happens as well, which is um you know, I think very much a representation of my view watching Stephen King at this point of his writing career of figuring out how to how to be a custodian of the work and still be able to create, um, you know, something out of, uh, you know, out of his heart. Uh, that is, I think, such an interesting translation for me. I can't not think about that when I watch this movie, that that uh, Annie Wilkes represents the people that, that 
we all serve if we're in any sort of creative, uh, you know, creative endeavor, the, the fans, the people who, uh, who listen. And, and I think about it just as I talk about Avengers, right? I'm, I, you know, I can be just as loony a fanboy as anybody else, uh, you know, uh, about these things. It's, it is easy to, to sort of see yourself lose control a little bit, right? I mean, when when there's something that you really find a, an affinity for that affinity relationship, uh, I, I think is much more powerful um, than we give credit for. Uh, you know, we we sort of malign it when it comes to you know teens in line at a Taylor Swift concert, but nerds in line at a Star Wars convention. Um, you know, it's it it's. It's that vibe, and I, and that's one of the things I love so much about this movie is the way these two characters, the way James Conn and Kathy Bates play with each other, um, as um, you know, and this idea of of what it means to be a fan and what it means to to have to sort of let go. Yeah, it's uh, especially in today's age with the way that fandom has evolved through social media. Mm-hmm. It does make it much more interesting. And you look at something like the Bling Ring, which is a, a, a kind of a frightening look at, at how, uh, in the modern world, how fandom can kind of turn uh, into this kind of this stalking and robbery sort of uh, mentality that these people have. Because it, now it's like they want to kind of have that same sort of level of fame, which is uh, an, an interesting look at how it has changed a little bit. But, mm-hmm. but fandom... Um, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting how it does continue to evolve. And, um, I think you're right. It's in this film, it is a very interesting look at that person and who it is, who's kind of owns that material now. Yeah. I mean, that, that was really the, the lesson for me was, uh, you know, of this film was the intention of the film to me, at least appeared to be, you know, look, uh, look what happens when you, the, the blessing is you have built an amazing following of readers around the world who absolutely love uh, what you have done and love what you have created. And, and uh, as Bacall's character, his agent says, uh, you know, this misery Chastain put braces on your kids and put them through college and, you know, so let's let's not be too hasty, uh, and mm-hmm. in in whatever comes next. But because that's the blessing of fandom is that you've created something that people that is a gift to people's lives that gives them inspiration. And this is a movie that defines in no uncertain terms what happens. The betrayal it sort of puts that visceral connection or that 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 palpable connection to the betrayal that comes when you're when you uh, when you've reached the end of of it there's um an interesting element to that i think also is um uh, Stephen King said, I, I mentioned, I think, in the, I can't remember which episode, maybe it was Cujo, um, how in Entertainment Weekly, at the time Green Mile came out in 99, Stephen King had put this um, top 10 um, list of his favorite adaptations of his novels. And uh, Misery is, I think, number five on the list. And, uh, sorry, number six on the list. And, um, uh, he said about it, he said, William Goldman's best script since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and a bravura performance by Kathy Bates. If there's a flaw, it's that the movie never quite explains writer Paul Sheldon's salvation, his imagination. I got a peek at Goldman's original script, which would have allowed viewers to explore the writer's mind. If they'd made that one, James Kahn might also have won a little gold statue. 
I find that very interesting. And I read the book. It was so long ago. But I do um, remember that there was a lot, like you would kind of go into the world of of uh, Misery of as this new book that he's writing, Misery Reborn or whatever, Misery's Return. Um, and you'd kind of get that story uh, with the missing typewriter key, typewriter key and all that as he'd be typing those chapters. And that was, uh, you know, it, as you know from the novel and from the movie, essentially Annie is making him write this new book of Misery. But also it's a really interesting spin on it where, um, by now, his opportunity to retake control of that character, it helps him actually get through this horrific event, and it leads brilliantly to that conclusion of the film and that great climax when he uses it to his advantage to defeat her, and he burns it, you know, and it's uh, it's a it's a great way to kind of take control of that again when when this crazy fan had wrested it from him, uh, you know, too much far too far from his grasp. Mm-hmm. Totally. Now, talk talk a little bit about James Caan. How do you how do you feel like he did representing Paul Sheldon? Because this was a was one of those sort of contested casting uh, uh, decisions, and and when you look at the litany, the list of of men that were uh, approached to play this film, it's it's pretty much everyone you could possibly imagine, and they all yeah. turned it down. Yeah, William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford. Uh, Warren Beatty um, wanted to do it, but he wanted to um, rework the script. And then Dick Tracy uh, got uh, extended, so he couldn't. And so somebody brought up James Caan, who said, sure. And <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like I like picking yeah. up the scraps after, yeah. after all those guys. <laughs> right. No, but, uh, you know, I mean... The interesting thing about James Caan is I always see him as such an angry character. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's just because of The Godfather that I always picture him that way. But he certainly can play anger very well. And he works really well for me in this film. I think he plays this writer character really well. He gets a um, a handle of just kind of this world. And he, he never goes crazy. He never is th- th- that high-octane James Caan he is just very even keel and he works really well reacting to this um the crazies coming from Kathy Bates and it's really interesting watching this this chess match between these two um brilliant actors as they play these two characters as his character Paul Sheldon is trying to read her and trying to make sure he plays the right piece so as to not set her off again or to make sure that he gets his drugs or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I think so too. I, he is, uh, the most sort of, um, yeah, it's interesting to look at him because he's sort of naturally, uh, masculine in this film, you know, and, and it's, that that sort of works both in in a couple of different ways. You know, first of all, we get to see him just kind of, um, in his, general state of uh kind of frenetic action uh when he's mm-hmm. trying to wheel himself around the house and he's he's you know trying to experience and take in all the things all the the um various signals in the house try to understand her movements and try to kind of parse that uh but also like we get to see him convalescing and and uh, you know he very much reminds me of my dad you know when <laughs> 
<laughs> he was having <laughs> sort of like just being taken care of, you know, and there was something that was really sort of naturally um, pleasant in the first sort of 30 minutes of the film before her first big turn where she comes in the middle of the night and stares <laughs> over at him. Um, and and so I found him really appealing in this film, and it was it was such a, a twist. I think what did what did he done? I, obviously, he'd just done because I think when did Dick Tracy came out right right before this? Um, uh, Dick Tracy. Been, they were both nineteen ninety releases, but I don't remember when exactly. Um, uh, it, Dick Tracy was the summer. This was in the winter, winter but he was not so. in Dick Tracy. Though. Yes, he was. He was. Hmm. Oh yeah, he was one of the guys. He was one of them, one of the mob guys, right? Spaldoni. So that I find uh, equally interesting that he was in this movie and Warren. But he wasn't huge in this movie, but in Dick mm. Tracy. But anyway, he comes off of Dick Tracy. But right before this, he was in another one of my favorites, Alien Nation, and um, uh, and it's a very different character. Like I, you know, everything I had known, like you said, I mean, I, everything I had known about him was defined by this crazy, angry guy, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, um, or this crazy confused guy or this crazy, you know, we go back to, we've already talked about him and, and sort of his experience in being a man in thief. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, there is, there was much about him that was counter to my experience of his role here. And I think that made it all the more interesting to watch. And I found myself feeling the same thing. Uh, wow, that James Caan, he's, he's really pretty good, you know, in this film, even now. And I've seen this movie, a, you know, a dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great job in it. Uh, but, and, and the nice thing about him being such kind of that masculine character is it works really well when you see somebody that you've seen play such a masculine character have to be so broken and have to rely on somebody so much, which you kind of were alluding to. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting when he, it's, gosh, it's just horrifying when she pulls the blanket back and you see those legs that are just like puffy and swollen and blotchy and broken and all wrapped up. And, and this guy, I mean, he just can't get around. And so it's great as he starts finding his strength to sneak out of the room or to, um, uh, to just come up with his little plans, it's nice to see kind of that uh, that machine working again, and you know whether it's just his mental machine or whatever. But it's great that that James Con is is kind of working his way out. Well, and that's one of the reasons because he plays that piece so well. That's one of the reasons that the um, you know when she discovers that he's been getting out, why her reaction to that and his reaction to that experience is so powerful because she. Uh, uh, she confronts him so gently uh, mm-hmm. as he's in bed. And now we've been watching his legs heal. We've been watching him get better uh, over the course of the film. And then she comes in and she uh, and to you know she comes at him with an idea. Essentially, so this is I know you've been getting out. This is something I have to do. You know, for your own good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that sort of maternal again that that nursing um, kind of aesthetic that that comes to to uh, bear here where she she has a solution to a problem and she goes ahead and executes and and that is of course the hobbling scene uh where she puts the wood between his ankles and then smashes his feet with a with a that breaks his ankles inward uh with a sledgehammer mm-hmm. and and that i think is the uh, is the sort of third point of james Conn's performance that i think is is really wonderful it's not the hobbling itself because i can imagine being able to muster the nerve to scream but it is the 
the weakness that we get to see leading up to the hobbling as he is begging her not to do it. That is a side of James Conn that I don't think we, we see very often. Um, yeah. and, and I really love it. I am just, just really drawn into that scene as horrifying as it is. And this is in contrast to the book where they, I, I believe she actually cuts off his foot. Uh, yes, she's is, a lot more, uh, a lot more violent. I mean, it's violent either way, but she actually, uh, chops his one of his feet off with an axe, and then when he complains about uh, a missing letter on the typewriter, she actually slices off his thumb with an electric knife. Right, and you see, so, like I, I think that the hobbling sequence in the film is an improvement on that. I, I think it's more horrifying um, because it is it it is so much. Um, uh, I you know I I don't know that I I don't know that I have the words for it. I'm I'm trying to figure out what what is it about that hobbling that I find so, um, so much better than just cutting off. It's like cutting well, off the feet is is expected. Like I get it. Like that's going to be the solution. But the hobbling I think is such a creative solution to um, to this to her problem. Much more creative than the kind of uh, expected. Um, amputation that i wish that i could find this quote i was looking for it um but i couldn't remember where i had read it but william goldman had talked about that because when he adapted the book um he had the hobbling scene he left it the way that it was in the book uh, and where it was she acts as his foot off and that was something that I believe rob reiner wanted to change and rob was just like it's too strong it's going to um uh, it's 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 going to take away from the film a little bit, and it was a big argument between uh, William Goldman and Rob Reiner, and um, it was one of those things that uh, he was just like, we have to keep that scene. That is the scene. That's the reason I wrote this script. And when he finally uh, saw the film, or uh, you know, he he saw it and recognized that. Um, Rob Reiner was right that the horror in that moment is not in the fact that it gets cut off. It's just in the fact that she is crazy enough to do something like that. Mm -hmm. And if it was a big bloody mess, it kind of would have taken uh, people out of a little bit because it would have just been a little more of a horror uh, trope that you would expect. Like you were saying, by kind of making it this, uh, you're something you're not expecting, but it's still equally horrific. And it's, it's all about the psychology and that, that keeps it focused on the characters. I think a lot more rather than just the violent nature of it. Yeah. That that's, that's precisely it. Those words are better than mine. Well, uh, William <laughs> Goldman's would have been better if, than mine if I could have found them. So. <laughs> I, I think that really, uh, that really captures what, you know, the pieces of the horror in the film that are, that are muted yet so surprising, um, that I think it earns a little bit more of the gruesomeness at the end. You know, when we have the, um, the uh, assassination of, of, uh, of the sheriff uh, at the top of the stairs, you know, that is a, that's a bit of gore that comes as unexpected by the time we, we get to that point in the film. You know what I'm saying? Shockingly, uh, yeah, shockingly unexpected. Yeah, I mean, we just, you know, we know something's going to happen, but, but that this hole kind of erupts from his chest is, is something we, do, you know, I, I don't think we expect. Uh, then, uh, you know, the, the final sort of assault um, is it's 
you know, it's a scary fight between this woman who is clearly, um, they've, they have done a great job of establishing her physical prowess, her strength. I mean, just, just by letting her carry him on her shoulders through the blizzard, uh, was enough to set up that she is, um, she is a force, but he is also compromised still at this point, you know, he's hobbled, he can't walk and he's, he's weak. Uh, even though he's been doing, you know, some, his, exercises by, you know, deadlifting a typewriter. It's, it's, you know, he is in a weakened state. And so that's a, that's, uh, that's a scary fight. I think they set it up well and, and, uh, they clearly have established that she's, uh, sociopathic and, and, um, uh, it ends up being a, a, a great, thrilling, horrific climax. Yeah. It's just fantastic. And, uh, just a, a nice little uh, footnote to that climactic fight is the um, the way that the head smashes into the typewriter when he trips her. Uh, I've always been uh, kind of just um, uh, I, I've always enjoyed how thorough of a banging it is <laughs> because yeah. that that head comes down so hard on that typewriter. It really uh, does. And uh, it's just one of those things, and I, I, I very distinctly remember—I uh, don't know—is uh, you know, Entertainment Weekly or something that I read at the time. But they were talking about how they did that, and they actually made a mold of Kathy Bates' head that was, uh, you know, kind of like a, a just a big, heavy mold of her, and they they you know put all the hair on it and everything, and then they actually took that mold and they would actually smash it down onto a typewriter to get that thorough, just complete smack into the uh the typewriter to make it to make it so the audience could really feel that um uh weight when the two collided which i think works really well rather than cg or anything like that it's it it feels very um uh 100 real <laughs> it feels really bad it does it feels so bad i can see why she doesn't get up right away when she smacks her head into it yeah, you know, she it you feel like she shouldn't get up at all. And I think if there's anything if we're going to nitpick it at all, the fact that she gets up again is it, it falls into the horror trope. Um and well, yet I forgive it. And that is even um uh toned down from the book which she gets up again like he um like what happens in the book. Okay, so she um Go. He stuffs the paper into her face, uh, trying, you know, eat this, eat this. Um, she uh, attacks him again. She trips. She smacks her head. Um, he. She crawls on him and collapses on his chest uh, from all of her injuries. He makes it out. He he turns around, locks her in the room, and then she sticks her fingers under and is trying to grab at him. So she's still alive, and he is trying to figure out how is she still alive. So it kind of played with that horror cliche, but then he's in so much pain, he has to go get some pills. He falls asleep and passes out. Um, when he wakes up, some cops actually show up. He says, watch out, she's alive in that room. They go in, and she's not there. She'd broken through the window. And she had gone out to the barn, and she had gotten a chainsaw, and she was going to come inside and cut him to pieces. But uh, in the process of going out there and all that, um, because of the head, uh, the skull fracture she got when she fell, 
um, she actually ended up dying and they found her body outside with the chainsaw in hand. So it was like, it was much, much longer, more drawn out. So that's going back to what I said at the beginning about William Goldman. He really, even, even keeping some of that horror cliche in there, he did find a way to really whittle it down and made it much more of an, an efficient movie. Yeah, you can you can feel it. And and I feel like the film, you know, when you look at who at, at where the film's focus is, you know, it, it is really a very intimate movie. Do you know, oh, yeah. like we, we have James Conn and Kathy Bates and their relationship is wonderful. But the other really important relationship here is Richard Farnsworth and Francis Sternhagen is Buster in Virginia. Buster is the is the everything guy, uh, you know, the sheriff and all associated roles and, and Virginia, his wife and assistant. And they have a wonderful relationship between the two of them as they uh, go about kind of uncovering the disappearance of Paul Sheldon over the course of weeks. Um, you know, how do you feel about them? I have always loved them. It's just such a great relationship that was built into the story about, uh, you know, a relationship between two people, one of them a very doting fan. This was a great way to show that kind of loving relationship that also is full of just that kind of acerbic wit and that attitude, which is so much fun when played by Farnsworth and Sternhagen. Just so much fun. It is just wonderful. Their um their relationship and their marriage is um is just, it's just perfect uh yeah. for this film. And it makes it uh, it, it actually makes you consider, I think, at the end when he is uh, Buster is ultimately uh killed, it makes you consider you know, that is a that's a loss that they built enough of the character uh, into and as a secondary character, even even so they built enough of that character into the film that um, that you actually feel the loss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought that was that was really wonderful. Francis Sternhagen later appeared in uh, The Mist, another Stephen King adaptation. Uh, the Mist. I don't think I liked that one. Oh, I do. Do you? I maybe that's, a, that's a. I think that's a love it or hate it one. Oh, all right. But I enjoyed it quite a bit. She was also in the hospital. Yes. Now that one uh, we like very much. Mm-hmm. Sort of, right? Sort of. Yeah. No, I think we did like. So, it. Right. I mean, we don't need it's... to watch it a whole bunch of times, but we liked it. <laughs> we did. We did. Yes. All right. Uh, where? Uh, what else do you want to talk about on this uh, on this film? Shall we talk a little bit about? Uh, uh, do we need to talk a little bit about Rob Reiner? I think we talked about him a lot in our last episode. I mean, I, I it's I will say, watching these two films, all I could think of is, man, Rob Reiner needs to go direct another Stephen King adaptation because that might get his career back on track. Yeah, you know, how many did he do? And it, it's a just, little bit... It's just these two. It's just these two, but... Uh, one of the things that I thought was, was interesting, he did a, a, a significant uh, interview with um, um, TV legends, uh, and you can find the whole thing. It's like, I don't know, 12, par- 12 half-hour parts um, where they talk about Rob Reiner from birth to death. Uh, wow. It's just a headshot of him. Uh, you can watch the whole thing. It's, it's great stuff. But one of the things that he talks about, which I find really fascinating, is that Stephen King's um, you know, relationship with him, and because of the work he did on Stand By Me and 
Misery, which were, you know, as we talked about last week, Stand By Me was another one that was very important to Stephen King. These two films back to back really encapsulate uh, this, you know, his relationship to his youth and his relationship to his career, two things that are very important in his life, right? And that Rob Reiner was such a good, you know, uh, custodian of his stories. He he said uh, that he was going to end up giving um, first rights to, you know, of, of his adaptations to Castle Rock. So even though Reiner didn't do, uh, didn't directly direct anymore, I think it was a total of like six films that Castle Rock ended up uh, producing. Uh, and Rob Reiner was directly involved in, in that because of his relationship with Stephen King. Nice. Which I, yeah, yeah. they did, uh, Dolores they Claiborne, did, uh, um, right. Uh-huh. Uh, gosh, what else? Anyhow, a lot of them, um, and uh good good uh, you know and i don't know there were there were as we get the, the later films i think there were more that i liked more even than the than the earlier films that i that we've already talked about so there may be another another stephen king series in us yeah the problem with uh looking up castle rock is uh all of the tv work that they did yeah. it makes their list so long that it's like impossible yeah <laughs> every seinfeld episode is on here uh, <laughs> it's like i don't need to see all of those can we just see the movies i don't know i don't know but uh yeah anyhow anyway. so that's yeah. this that's that was the I, I thought an interesting piece of the story about their history um so there yes. you have it i agree i agree um well we should uh mention mm-hmm. that the uh fantastic Barry Sonnenfeld shot this. Yes, he did. And I think it goes to you know that that sense of claustrophobia that the film has and I that I, I really like. First of all, it's a small town, uh obviously. All of the you know, it feels very much like a western to me. You know, I mean, the the way we're introduced to the town is in, you know, Buster's, you know, from behind Buster, sort of from the wall, looking out toward the front door of the sheriff's office. And uh, I love that shot in particular because it reminds me so much of like a saloon shot, you know, where we get to see the door and the, the swinging doors, you know, of an old, old Western saloon. Um, right. And, and so you get the feeling it sort of puts you in a sense of place, I think, really nicely uh and then of course the house uh is um you know is beautifully i think shot um particularly the the sequences where she is standing over him in bed like any of the point of view sequences of annie wilkes from uh paul are really terrifying uh and i think are uh, you know a credit to sonnenfeld's you know creativity with the camera here and and lens choice you know using the wide angle lens yeah getting her close up to give that nice facial distortion when you're looking at somebody, it, uh, it really does help emphasize that, uh, that invasion of your space. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, who else is hot? And, well, and, and this, I was just going to say, this was the last, uh, film that Sonnenfeld did as a cinematographer. We have talked about him with blood simple early in his career. We talked about him, uh, how he did some more with the Coen brothers, including um, Miller's Crossing, which we talked about. We talked about him in When Harry Met Salary. And, uh, when Sally. Harry Met uh, Salary? <laughs> salary. <laughs> I've got celery on the brain. What can I say? I need my, Man I need my... and his struggles to be a vegetarian. 
It's a totally different well, movie. Well done. <laughs> yes, and then and then misery. So this was the last before he uh, switched hats permanently, uh, and then started with the Adams Family, which is the very first uh, directing role he yeah. did. So, and uh, his latest is a TV movie called Dead Boss. <laughs> A woman wrongly accused of murdering her boss is forced to prove her innocence. Well, yeah. that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Oh, Barry. Oh, Barry. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh-huh. Uh Just another random side note. Uh, Kathy Bates was yeah. also in Dick Tracy. What was she in Dick Tracy? How is that possible? <laughs> Isn't that strange? That's crazy. She, she was, um, was it Mrs. Green? Uh, I don't know who that is, but I don't either. she was, it's like, God, what a weird, what a weird connection. That's so really strange. funny. That's so really strange. funny. Yeah. So anyway, that's that little note. Um, you know, other than that, uh, and, uh, you know, the music I think is effective in this film. It's not a soundtrack that I go to and listen to, but I think that the music works really well. Mark Shaman, um, he is a composer that can do some great stuff uh, in context of the stories that he's telling. Uh, it's not always stuff that you want to kind of put on and play, but it does work really well. We've talked about him, I and mean, he did... Um, uh, he did... Uh, uh, this he did. Um, what else did he, do? he did? Some stuff in in when when Harry met Celery, <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle, South Park. I mean, he he's got some good stuff, you know. And uh, but I think also what works really well is the Liberace music, um, where it's placed and how they do it. Like when when Moonlight Sonata comes on during the hobbling scene, that is such a tranquil, relaxing piece of music. And to play that over that scene just further emphasizes the terror of it because it's not creepy music. It's not scary. It's this amazing, uh, almost lullaby-sounding yeah. uh, classical piece that works so well. And likewise, when when uh, Paul is writing, he's having that flurry of inspiration in his writing uh, you've got that great Tchaikovsky piece, and it it works really well. And so, whether it's Mark Shaman's or the other music, I think that is something that's worth note and how effective it works in context of the film. Yeah, I, yeah, I I agree with you, and I think uh, you know I think there are a lot of um, of Shaman's scores that you know I I'm not as much of a fan of, but uh, um, but every now and again, you know, he comes he comes up with something that that I think is really touching. Yeah. I mean, he can, he can do some good stuff. South park, bigger, longer uncut. Love that. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me too. Ah, yes. Uh, and, uh, let's see. Anybody else, uh, strike you as fantastic. Um, you know, the only thing, uh, just a couple random things that no one else on the crew that I was going to, um, hit on, but, the um, just interesting note as far as Stephen King goes, this was actually going to be one of his Richard Bachman books when he was writing under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up, uh, he was outed, um, I think, right um, 
after I believe it was The Running Man, when this would have been his next book. And so because of that, he ended up releasing it as a Stephen King book. But um, but I think it's one of those interesting things where when you look at the Richard Bachman books and you look at the Stephen King books, Richard Bachman's are grounded a little more in reality. They're not quite so um, kind of that the fantastical horror stories with, you know, cars that come to life with possessed spirits and all that sort of thing. And so it it does kind of make sense that this would have been a Richard Bachman book, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it's it's interesting that uh, you know it's interesting I think any writer when they end up taking those pen names to kind of write other novels and stuff, and whatever the reasons may be I think he took Richard Bachman because at the time in the seventies I think uh, publishers were really um, opposed to authors writing more than one book a year, and so he was he came up with a pen name so that he could be publishing more frequently. Interesting. Yes, yes. Um, and then the other random things is that uh, this story has been adapted uh, a couple other times, once as an off-Broadway play. Um, that Just uh, recently, more recently, right? I mean, isn't that just was, a couple of years ago? Well, it was revived in 2005. I don't know when it was originally uh, made, but it was revived in 2005. And then it played, and that was in London, and then in 2007 in Greece, and then in 2012 in Dubai. So, uh, yeah, strangely, but it started as an off-Broadway play, and uh, and then um, it was uh, adapted again by another by a Dutch composer and theater producer. He adapted it into a musical. He calls it a feel-bad musical. He says, misery in feel-bad musical is what it's written as. Oh, my goodness. This is where David Fincher got it. Yeah. It's, the feel-bad movie of the holidays. It looks pretty funny. Like, when I'm looking at the, the website for it, uh, and they, they have this picture of the Kathy, or the Annie Wink, Wilkes character kind of holding a giant, I mean, it is a giant mallet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and and don't forget um, uh, Julie Ganapati. That's right. The uh, 2003 South Indian version of Misery. Yeah, which is in it's an actual remake of the film. Yes, not, not an adaptation novel. <laughs> uh, you got to love that. Oh uh, goodness! Yeah, I wonder if King uh, and Reiner both get royalties from yeah, that. I know. Is that on his top ten list of favorite adaptations of adaptations? <laughs> right. That's a whole other list. Yeah, right. He's got his favorite adaptations, but then the adaptations of adaptations. Uh, the, I think that's where all the, the <laughs> Children's of the Corn sequels go and, and carry the third remake. <laughs> that's right. Except for they're all musicals. Right, right. Yeah. And, yeah, and then, yeah. Children's just, of the Corn, the musical, is crazy. Just bananas <laughs> what those kids do. Malachi, Malachi, Malachi! <laughs> <laughs> He's coming for you! <laughs> Oh gosh. Rain love that. Up. Love that old song. Put the grown-up's hand in the blender. <laughs> that was it. That's a real toe tapper. Oh yes. Gets the whole crowd a clapping. Yep. Yep. Sure uh, enough does. Uh I think we should talk about money. Let's do it. This film did pretty well for itself. Of the R-rated films that came out in 1990, it was number 8 on the list. <laughs> And that's saying something. (laughs) That's right. Behind Pretty Woman, which was the number one R-rated film of 1990, Total Recall, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Presumed Innocent, Another 48 Hours, The Godfather Part 3, and Flatliners. Those were all 
ahead of it. Hmm. But this film, uh, it cost, uh, what was it, about $20 million to make, roughly. Uh, and in today's dollars, that's about $35.6 million. It ended up grossing domestically about 61. $3 million. So it did, it made a nice profit. I couldn't find any international figures, but just from those domestic numbers, it ended up turning a handsome profit. And if you look at adjusted profit per finished minute, it was making about $680,000 per finished minute. My goodness, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Not as good as Stand By Me. That's still the highest uh, grossing film on our list in the profit per finished minute, but uh, it's second. Not bad. Not too bad. All right. Good job, Rob Reiner. Good job, Rob Reiner. Uh, let's uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can check out our stack rankings. See if our movies line up with your movies, and if Misery will break the top 41. 41? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> misery or Carrie. I love how that keeps popping up. I would do Misery. I would too. <sighs> Good. Excellent. Misery or 12 Monkeys. Hmm. Mm, see, I would probably... That's a hard one. Goodness. I could... I, I really... Like, I, if I in my head go, 12 Monkeys, oh, but then there's Misery. And then I go, Misery, oh... Oh, I know. And there's like sadness and shame. I know. <sighs> what do we do here? I'm going to say 12 Monkeys because it's I've watched it more. I don't know if that's a fair way to do it. I, see, I'm, I think I'm leaning toward Misery. All right, I'll do Misery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, really, I, I'm really comfortable in either way on that one. All right. Misery or The Shining? Misery. Really? Over The Shining? Yes, I know. Bananas, right? I just had a conversation about The Shining today, and I was just sort of reliving how it aged on me over this last one. And in the context of just sort of what I like about these two characters, the, and uh, these two characters, as soon as I think of Shelley Duvall, I think, okay, misery. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. I don't know if it's completely fair, but it is pretty funny. But I'll give you misery. I'll give you misery. All right. Misery or stand by me. Wow, this is amazing. Yikes. I'm going to have to go stand by me. Mm. Yeah, me too. Misery or aliens? Aliens. Yeah. Uh, Misery or the Fisher King? Uh, hmm. Do the Fisher King. Yeah, I think so too. Misery or the French Connection? The French Connection. Yeah. Misery or Fight Club? Fight Club. Okay, there you go. Number 20. Wow. Craft, it beat 41. Top 41. <laughs> <laughs> Number 20 out of 155. Good job, Misery. Outstanding. Well done, Misery. Misery the pig. Playing by misery herself. Played by herself. I always wonder about that. Like, Really? They really had, they had to find a pig that just happened they, to have a pig named they Misery had, the Somebody pig. had a pig named Misery. And that, that could pig. also act. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah, one acting a, pig. That's a big ask. I'd put that pig right up next to Babe any day. 
Yeah. That'll do, pig. That'll do. Hey, this is a good one. Where do we go from here? You know, believe it or not, this series is coming to an end. (laughs) Wait, not? (laughs) I choose not? (laughs) I know, we could just keep going. We could be talking about sometimes they come back again. Maximum overdrive? (laughs) There's so... Oh, what's the... Oh, that torturous one with uh morgan freeman with the uh like the the alien poop that comes out of the toilet what is oh, that oh yeah no god i <laughs> that was horrible oh <laughs> i still am convinced that he wrote that while he was doped up on his meds after he after the accident didn't he admit that i thought he actually oh, admitted that maybe he did that was a trip that was a weird... oh goodness that was that was terrible yeah so there's some that we probably won't be talking about. I, I wish I could but, remember what it was. Boy, that movie that didn't didn't hold well. When they went yeah. hunting, right? There was a hunting thing, and the guy yeah, he the had like guys. a Dumb and Dumber esque poop on the toilet. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> it's yeah, just so bad. It was pretty terrible. It was a dream catcher. That's the one. Yeah, that was terrible. The Ugh. book was better. I remember that. I didn't read that book, but that that's what happens to a lot of his, you know, especially the TV movie ones. Sometimes you watch the TV movies and it's just like, oh, wow, they didn't quite capture that yeah. right. You can tell it's a budget thing sometimes. Yeah. But like, Anyway, so where, where did you, did you say what we're doing next week? I didn't. I didn't. Oh. We were talking about all these other things we're skipping because the series is ending and you got so sad. <laughs> I did get sad. And so we digressed to, to keep uh, uh, not having to end it. But uh, alas, we're going to end it next week with a... Uh, this is the second of the um, adaptations that we will be talking about from different seasons. This is Apt Pupil. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I really want us to talk about this one. That's good. I, have, I haven't seen this since I saw it in the theater, so I'm curious to go back and watch it again. Yeah. No, me too. Yeah. Good. Right. Well, I feel good about this. Yeah. The The... the, the Final moments of our eight-part Stephen King series comes. Excellent, excellent. excellent. All right. Well, hey, uh, this was good. Yeah. I gotta go to bed. I'm gonna go read a romance novel. from mine is actually this is interesting it was written by um mark twain <laughs> wow from the grave <laughs> mark twain's writing from monrovia liberia uh in 2007 i had a hankering to watch this movie so i started to last night but somehow the movie didn't interest me at all i had absolutely no interest in what was going to happen next because one I didn't care about the character of Paul Sheldon. If you want the audience to be on the edge of their seat when the character is in peril, you have to get the audience to identify with that character, as happens for the first half of Titanic. But misery is like Titanic starting halfway in. It doesn't work that way. Even con men know this. That's why they're called confidence men. 
In this movie, my only reaction to Paul Sheldon was annoyance. He seemed like a typically lousy writer with a slovenly personality. I didn't mind that he was getting tortured. The plot was impl- oh, two. The plot was implausible and uninteresting. Sheldon is far too docile and unresourceful. He just sits there like he should have a sweatshirt that says victim. Caring about a born victim is for suckers. Real victims usually try to save themselves a lot more desperately than he did. His token efforts to save himself were token at best. So I turned it off, wondering what possessed me to ever want to watch it in the first place. Scene. Wow. Mine is by Casey Strawberry Blonde. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Just just a two-star one. And it's really long, so I'm going to be drastically condensing it. Huge come down from the book. You'll hardly recognize it. I'm an RN who could kiss Stephen King for bringing public attention to the very real problem of evil, sometimes killer nurses who are either sociopathic or narcotic addicted and still working in healthcare. Still, the movie is so disappointing. There are several parts that don't add up, but James Caan's golden Razzie-worthy performance is what completely ruins it. I didn't expect all of the mind games and psychological warfare that goes on between the hero and villain in the book to be communicated in the movie, but was disappointed that more of it wasn't. I thought that was the main main point of the story. Silly me. Again, I thought the whole story was supposed to be about a villain who is an evil genius and her kidnapped victim who is so intelligent and able to hold it together that he has a chance, even though the odds are greatly stacked against him. Instead of portraying that, Khan acts like he thought he was supposed to be portraying Wile E. Coyote. In one scene where the villain horribly abuses and tortures him, Khan writhes and yells twice, and then voila! Half a minute later, he's good as new, a la your favorite cartoon character. He didn't even break a sweat. That's it? I don't think so, James. Near the end, Khan needs a bath and some clean clothes, but otherwise looks like he just got back from a spa. Miraculously, his emotions are still rock solid. Uh Uh-huh, right. That's fortunate because he needs to make a very nervy and dramatic escape attempt or be murdered by the villain. I don't think he... I think he creases his brow once during his escape attempt. There's still another scene at the very end that's bogus as, as it can be as, as, that's as bogus as it can be and an insult to people who've really lived through a certain medical problem. I won't tell you the ending, but my advice is to read the book and skip the movie. To see a performance by Bates that's excellent through the whole movie, I recommend Fried Green Tomatoes. To see a good one by Khan, I recommend The Godfather. If you want to read about real-life versions of Annie Wilkes, I recommend Nurses Who Kill by Clifford Leindecker and William A. Burt. <laughs> wow. That was like a review and a PSA all at once. <laughs> that's right. And that's the condensed version. About nurses who kill and what is that medical condition? IBS? I don't know. That's, that's like, what is the certain medical condition she's referring to? I don't know. That's a mystery. Yes. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 